think Tevez going to Juventus, what, what a coup that was for me. I mean, On a head-to-head -head battle, Atletico Madrid can do uh, more damage to Barcelona than the other way around. Either he's really blind or he's fixing the match. I, I can't see it any other way. I'm, I'm trying to get Sir Bob on my side here by saying City will win the Premier League. It, it is an upset. You would expect Man United to go and win there. Over a billion dollars was paid in transfer fees uh, between the clubs in, in Europe. It's football. It's damn football. Like Ferguson said, football. Bloody marvelous. Yeah, well, the celebration was, I can't believe I just scored against Mexico. Uh, at one point, Parma, I think it's only like 224 players under contract. Hey, they're gonna throw me out of here, fellas. You're gonna get me arrested on your show. If you're a serious talent, you're going back and you're playing for Santos. You, you know, you're going back to, to play for, like, in Argentina for River Plate or Boca Juniors, or you're going to Europe. He looked like the Ryan Giggs of old. He was more creative than any player on the pitch. Um, he made Matter look stupid. He made Rooney look silly. Now the Premier League is what the most exciting league out there. I think it's probably the best marketed league without a question. When you look at the draw for the, the Champions League, you kind of say, well, all the pieces kind of fell into place for everybody except City. I am your host, Joe Ucello. Sir Bob, Mike Orr, my co-host, Rob Rojas. My trusted co-host, Ben the Machine. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode 291 of Low Limit Football on this 26th of July, 2020. I am your host, Joe Ucello, and tonight, Spain is over, Germany is over, and England is set to conclude today. Next week, Italy will also see their ending. Juve delay their ninth title again with a 2-1 loss to Udinese. Ciro Immobile takes the lead in the Capocannonieri race over Cristiano Ronaldo. And we switch our focus to French football and Champions League as PSG win their 13th French title. We'll discuss this and much more with French football writer Jonathan Johnson, who will be joining us in just a little bit. But first, let me get my co-host in here, Mr. Roberto Rojas. How was your week, my man? That was good, man. Thank you. I think we also have to mention, uh, given that we are both based in Connecticut, um, baseball's back. Baseball is back, uh, you know, and you and I are both uh, professed Yankee fans and, uh, you know, looking forward to uh, a good a short season, but a good season. You know, it was it was kind of nice to have, uh, you know, baseball come back and kind of watch for a little bit, you know, a little bit of a change of pace, especially given everything that's happened, um, you know, recently in the world, don't you think? Definitely. I yeah. think it's very important to have it. Um, even even so, we have the NBA coming back as well uh, this week. We do. If you remember. Yeah, because they've turned into that uh, that tournament, you know, similar to MLS style, right? If you think about it, um, it's right. especially similar in location because they're at the same place. But, uh, you know, hopefully these things, um, you know, going back to the baseball one real quick, you know, we still see COVID-19 rearing its ugly head because it was um, uh, the best one of the best players for Washington uh, Nationals, uh, Soto. I can't think of his first name right now. But uh, he tested positive like the morning of the opening day uh, game. So Juan Soto. Juan Soto. Juan Soto. Thank you. So um, you know, it's just it's crazy. It's still here. It's still around. And you know, just stressing to everybody that we still need to be diligent and do what we need to do to get rid of this thing. Um, but it is great to have you know pretty much all sports back. Hockey is going to be back soon as well. You're, you're going to possibly see a situation where we have every single major sport playing at the same time, um, which I don't know that that's ever truly happened. Um, or if it, <laughs> if it has, it's happened kind of in like that 
that end of May, beginning of June, where you still got soccer going on, you've still got basketball, you've got baseball. Oh no, because you wouldn't have football. You wouldn't have the NFL. No, you wouldn't have football. Yeah. So that's, that's right. you know, so it's uh, it, you know, we went from having nothing to having everything where where it's like it's it's glued to your television and and people are still seeing the uh, the cornhole league on ESPN. So. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I guess we had to still had to finish off that that drama. But um, before we get started, I do want to send our, our best wishes out to David Amoyal um, from Gianluca DiMarzio and other outlets. Uh, David, uh, you know, it's as obvious common knowledge. He's put it on Twitter that uh, he's currently in the hospital again for diverticulitis. We were supposed to have him on the show uh, going back a few weeks now, but because he's had some of these health issues recently, uh, wasn't able to join us and just wanted to let him know that we, uh, you know, we're thinking about him and hopefully he recovers soon. And, and gets back to doing what what we love, what he loves, and what we love to see him do. So, um, best wishes to David uh, first and foremost. So, Rob, I want to jump in and let's let's get the ball rolling. I want to give you trivia real quick. Um, let's do it. All right. So, uh, this trivia question is born of a discussion that my brother and I were having yesterday, uh, and, and did a little research. And I was like, oh wow, the, you know, some interesting little tidbits from this. So, I drew, I developed this trivia question from that. Uh, in the opening monologue, I mentioned Chiro Immobile uh, took the lead in the Capocannoniere race. Uh, and if he wins the Capocannoniere, it would be his third title. Uh, going back, I think he won it 13-14, and I think he won it just a few years ago, co-winner with Mauro Icardi. Um, <clears throat> and so he's on the verge of winning his third uh, top-scoring title in Italy. My question to you is, Rob, and I want a number. I don't want a list of names on the first part. How many players have won the Capocannoniere three or more times? Okay, that's part one. And part two, uh, and I'll help you with it a little bit because there are two non-Italians that have won it three or more times. Can you name the two non-Italians? I could probably give you a guess on the first one if I had to give you a number. I think the second one, I, I'm thinking of one name. I don't know if he has three, though. Okay. But um, I, I will... Give it my best and uh, give it a shot. Awesome. And, uh, and we'll give you that answer at the end of the show. So let's jump into it. Opening thoughts tonight. And opening thoughts, uh, it, it kind of stumbled upon us. I mean, we were going to talk about the MLS's back tournament, of course, because it's one of the, the bigger things going on right now in football as, as the leagues start to wind down and, and pick up, so on and so forth. But uh, the other night, we put a, a poll on our, uh, on our Twitter page asking who would be sacked first because we've had pretty – lackluster performances from two giant clubs, Atlanta United and the LA Galaxy. <clears throat> They're both two teams that had high-profile coaches in Frank DeBoer at Atlanta and Guillermo Barros-Colotto at LA Galaxy. Um, Atlanta had not even scored a goal in this tournament so far, and they went home They went home very, very early. And so we put out there as a poll, who, would get, who do you think would get sacked first? And, you know, it was funny because Robert Burns and I kind of engaged in a little discussion about it. Um, and, and to be honest with you, neither of us thought that either of these coaches would get sacked. I mean, one, it's MLS. MLS tends to not sack their coaches, right? Or they don't pull the trigger on it too quickly. And, and two, it's it's kind of a weird season, and you give somebody the benefit of the doubt at this point. So, you know, you would move forward. So this was totally unexpected. But lo and behold, the very next day, Frank DeBoer mutually parts ways with Atlanta United, which came completely out of left field. Um, I do want to talk about the tournament as well, but I know that, you know, between Eric, we're having Eric Lopez on the, on the show last week, we've had Jason Longshore on as well before him, and, and he's a big Atlanta United guy. Um, it seems like Atlanta United it, it kind of comes up a lot in this show, and I wanted to talk, I wanted to get your thoughts, Rob, first on on him being sacked, and, you know, maybe you and I can discuss kind of who would be the options to come in and take over for him. So what are your thoughts on it, and, and what are your options? <clears throat> 
Well, I think firstly, I think I have to agree with you. I think no one really expected um, this to happen. Uh, as you have said, you know, teams in MLS don't technically sack their coaches, especially during the season, or at least in this case, the start of the season. So it is kind of interesting to see because I think from the beginning, when you look at when he was appointed to replace Tata Martino. Now, as you know, Joe, I think we can always guarantee that coming in for any coach, but especially a coach like Tata Martino, who had come in and in his first two years uh, achieved silverware, you know, win the MLS Cup in only the second year of existence for Atlanta United, and 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 play in a style that was fun and had fans become enamored with. So it was going to be hard for that to be replaced when he did eventually leave to go to Mexico. I think we wanted i think perhaps there was a bit of a smoke screen in the first season for Frank de Boer because yes even though they were able to capture the Copa Campeones and the US Open Cup and you know they they also went to a, a conference final as well only losing to i forgot the to, to Toronto yeah Toronto. they only lost to Toronto so yeah i think you could say that okay from a collective and a and I guess um, exceptions, uh, sorry, um, expectation point of view, they did well. But I think now the mentality has changed into the second season because there are a few factors. One is obviously, for all intents and purposes, I think Atlanta United have already guaranteed their place as a big club in MLS. Mm -hmm. I, I think they have achieved that because of what they've won in such a short amount of time. And so therefore you need to put them on that pedestal. Secondly, I think it's also important to know that... You know, when you have those star talents at your disposal, yeah, I understand that not having Josep Martinez was a big loss. But you still have the likes of Piti Martinez. You still have the likes of Ezekiel Barco playing there. Looking at all the transfers that they had made also during the season. You would think that with that talent, you could help um, spearhead a team in such a tournament like this, or at least for an entire season. Unfortunately, it didn't work. I mean, we, I think we saw some reports yesterday, or at least when the sacking occurred, a couple hours afterwards, that you know there were just mutiny within the, the, them and the and the coach. You know, uh, I've seen reports, or at least of uh, players walking out on training sessions and, and not getting and just giving up on the coach. And maybe we saw that in these three games. Maybe we just saw that kind of mentality. where, like, well, you know, we we can't end up like this because we're not playing in the style that we we were accustomed to. And we know how Frank De Boer has also earned that reputation of not being a manager, living up to his to his hype. He didn't do it in Inter. He didn't do it in England with Crystal Palace. And he didn't do it in Atlanta. But while you could say that perhaps this is a move that is out of the ordinary for MLS, you also have to realize something, Joe. I think Atlanta United in itself is a team that's out of the ordinary. Because now they kind of have that mentality of thinking, no, when things do not go the right way, we need to pull the trigger before it gets even worse. They know that they're better than what they are because of what they have at their disposal, because of what they have um, in, in, their, in their silverware at, at this point. And just like, you know, the reputation that they've earned within the last few years. They don't want to have those kind of low years. They want to be a team that can be successful for many years to come. I think that's kind of the, the, the mindset and the mentality that they have. You know, I mean, it's... I don't want to use this as a direct... Um, uh, interest or, or comparison, but maybe like a Real Madrid of MLS or a Bayern Munich. It's just like you know, all they want is success, and they can't take anything out of it. Now, in terms of who to replace, 
I mean, I personally think it will it would be more wise of them to go back to the style that made them successful in the first place. You know, getting that kind of offensive, high press type of manager that we saw with Tata Martino. I think they should go Hispanic or, or mm-hmm. Spanish some way. Um, if they can go Argentine, I, I think that might work. Um, as I said, and, and when the sacking occurred, I mean, I think a dream, dream um, choice for Atlanta United would get Marcelo Gallardo from River Plate. But I think, one, I, I don't think that would be good enough for him in terms of what he wants to achieve. And, and obviously that bigger ceiling of him is to go to Europe and see what he does there. Mm-hmm. And I think going to MLS might be a bit of a downgrade because of what he's already achieved in the short amount of time as coach of River Plate. Having said that, another option, and I also mentioned this to you as well, would be someone like Gabriel Heinze, the former Vélez Sarsfield coach. Mm-hmm. You know, someone that also comes from that same school of a, of a high-press, uh, offensive-minded uh, team. You know, the, the kind of Bielsa style. You know, we're, we're obviously talking about Bielsa now uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, you know, that kind of uh, mentality and that kind of school of, of, of play that has made Atlanta United successful. So I think they should go there. I think that's maybe the best option, but I don't think that Atlanta United will make the same mistake twice in hiring, you know, a Frank DeBoer-esque type of manager. You know, I, I'm just, I was just going to jump in because um, there's a great article on MLS, uh, on the MLS website, uh, MLSsoccer.com, written by Greg uh, Seltzer. And he listed a bunch of coaching options. One of them is actually Gabriel Heinze that you just mentioned. But an interesting one that, you know, never crossed my mind, but I, I didn't think about him, is uh, Eitor Karenka. Uh, you know, the former coach he used to actually play at the Colorado Rapids, which I had forgotten about. But he's another guy that is, you know, somebody that could do, offer something a little different for this team. He fits that Spanish speaking bill that you were discussing or you were talking about. Um, I agree with you. I think for Marcelo Gallardo, I think that it is probably uh, a, a bit of an overreach. I think his sights are set somewhere in Europe, whether it be Spain or England. I think Marcelo Gallardo is destined to go over to one of the top fives, you know, as, as we always talk about. Karenka is an interesting one. Uh, Heinze is also a very interesting one, especially given the, the Bielsa ties that you had mentioned. Uh, you know, that, that ability to play that high-pressing attacking style, which, you know, actually kind of mimicked what... Uh, Atlanta United did for the first couple of years, you know, it was that high press style, a very quick action, quick paced uh, a team. And it could help guys like PT Martinez and Ezekiel Barco, those guys that they currently have that would that would, you know, allow them to play a little freer where DeBoer just didn't allow that. Um, so I think it's interesting, you know, those names. And, and I've got to think that in the end, there will be somebody like that. And the question becomes, Rob, um, can Atlanta make this change in such a short in and, and choppy season that we're going to see here because of everything that's happened in the world. Do you think they make that change immediately where they reach out to a guy like Heinze or they reach out to, uh, you know, a guy like Karenka and they say, Hey, you know, we'd like you to come in and coach. Or do you think that they will kind of go with some type of caretaker for the moment and then kind of reset in 2021 and, and then, you know, have a clean slate and a clean season. What are your thoughts about that? Well, that, that's, that's the big, million dollar question because we also have to remember joe we don't know how the season will happen um when this tournament ends you know there, there hasn't been an official word about how the season will end or and again this is all hanging on the on how the, the pandemic and how mls is viewing the the safety of this league so we just don't know i think to play it safe that they go for some take caretaker coach for now mm-hmm. but 
I, I think they should put all their eggs in the basket for next season because I think that's when, yeah. So, yeah, I'll, I'll go back to what you said. I think I agree. I think they, they will have to like deal with someone for whatever remainder of the season that we get this year. And that assuming that we go back to some sort of normality come 2021, that they will have their ambitions cited on a on a manager that is able to, you know, get handle this team. But that's the thing. We, we don't know because we don't know how this I, I, I'd love to give you a more concrete answer and say, yes, this will happen. This will happen. But again, we don't know how this season will will, ha- will end once this uh, MLS is back tournament oh, ends. So yeah, th- that's that's all I could really say. And I think that's kind of the silver lining for Atlanta in the in the dark cloud of being eliminated so quickly in this tournament is that they're going to have a couple weeks now where they can assess, they can look at what they have as a team, they can look at what they have for staffing and everything and decide, you know, do they make a push for a coach now or do they kind of wait and, and, and do the caretaker role and then go from there? They're, they're in a position of strength when it comes to that type of decision right now, because they have nothing but time and they will have, they'll have trainers, they'll have practices. They'll, they'll, they'll still manage the team as they would normally do. But the question is going to be, do they bring somebody in that, that is all stuff that they're, you know, Atlanta is actually working from a position of strength and given the coaches that they brought in, you know, Tata Martino to start and and now Frank DeBoer, these are not small names. They can attract a bigger name because they are kind of, you know, they're, they're seen as one of the bigger jobs in MLS. I would say, you know, just the, just in the way that Scalotto went over to the LA galaxy, these are the bigger jobs in the, in the, uh, in the league. So I think that they'll have the ability to attract um, the coach they want. And, and I think they've got a couple of weeks now, because this tournament doesn't end until August 11th, they've got a couple of weeks now to go ahead and focus and, and really determine what that coach looks like, who, what that, who that coach is, and then go after him. So, um, can, but, I, can I just, also just say yes, one last thing? Please. I think um, <laughs> we were talking about Eric Lopez. Mm. I think him going to Atlanta United 2 might have been, the, in a way, because we were thinking yeah. he was going to go on the first team and get promoted, but now with this happened, it kind of makes sense, even though it, it didn't really happen the way it should have like it, no one expected him to join Atlanta United get demoted to the second team and then have the first team manager get uh, uh, sacked but I think it kind of works best for him now heading into next season because then he'll finally get a manager that perhaps will work to to, to his um that will get the best out of him you know and, and it makes you think that if they if, if the, the plan is to bring Eric Lopez up next season and have kind of a two striker situation with Joseph Martinez um well, it depends also because of the, the the player rules and everything. But if they do manage to to live in that kind of system, do they they must be focusing on a coach that would work well with that type of system and allow those players to play together. So, um, going to be interesting to see what what coaching moves they make over the next few weeks. That's for sure. So. Uh, let's jump real quick into the MLS tournament um, itself. Uh, so far at the time of the recording, Philly have have advanced to the quarterfinals with a 1-0 victory over New England. Orlando have also advanced to the quarterfinals on their side of the bracket with a 1-0 victory over Montreal. We still have uh, on the on, on one half of the bracket, we have Sporting KC Vancouver. That, that winner will face Philly on July 30th. Toronto FC um, and NYCFC, uh, as well as Portland, Cincinnati. And on the opposite side of the bracket, we have Seattle LAFC. That team will face Orlando, or that winner will face Orlando. Then San Jose Real Salt Lake and Columbus, Minnesota. Rob, just as a quick, we talked about this quickly the other um, the other day, about who we think our final would be and who we think our eventual champion would be. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you want to give me yours first, I, why don't you give me yours first? Do you think the final will be and who your champ will be? Um, I think the final will be, and again, it, it, this is all pending what could happen. You know, this, I, I want to see how this Philadelphia Union side does mm-hmm. against the likes of a Toronto or a New York City FC, because I feel like 
that game that we'll see today will probably decide the final. It's, we'll probably give our final. So I'm going to go out on a limb. It's it's a tight one. Yeah. It really is. A, you know, it's, it's very interesting to see these type of tournaments occur. But if I had to choose a finalist, uh, man, I think... I think it'll be Toronto. I think Toronto will go on that other side of the bracket. Um, and then the other side, I'm oh, sorry, on that side of the bracket, on the other side, you know, Orlando are looking good. They look really good, even though they've they found, finally found some feet after quite some time. But uh, I'm going to go for LAFC. So I think I'm going to go for an LAFC final against the Toronto, Toronto FC. Okay. And I'm getting Los Angeles. I'm giving Los Angeles the... the um, the victory in that one. It, it's going to be a good I think that would be an awesome yeah. final. You know, you got Akinola on one side of the pitch and then Diego Rossi on the other. You know, the kind of the two main strikers that um, that both teams have. So, so forwards, I should say. Yeah. Um, that, I think that would be an interesting final. So those are my two picks for the moment. And for me, you know, I, I, I'm backing the Philadelphia side. I, I This team under Jim Curtin right now is playing very, very well. Um, they seem to be pretty focused and, and, and organized on both, <clears throat> on both offense and defense. So, I, I kind of like Philly. Um, you know, again, Toronto FC is, is another one of those scary teams, and even Portland to an extent. Um, they're both interesting sides, but I think Philly's going to proceed or, or advance from that side of the bracket. On the other side, it's tough to pick against LAFC. What LAFC, you know, we talk about high-profile teams and that sort of thing. Um, you and I talked about this the other day. The the, the problem with uh, the LA Galaxy and Atlanta United is they haven't replaced the Ibrahimovic and the uh, Joseph Martinez goals. And LAFC technically is in the same boat with with no uh, Carlos Vela available for this tournament, but they've replaced the goals. And so they look just as strong as ever advancing here. The only team that I see possibly giving them a hard time is the Columbus crew, who haven't lost a match yet in this tournament. Going to be interesting to see because I think that's going to be the, the semifinal on that side. Um, you know, I hate to pick against LAFC. Um, and, and I don't think I'm gonna, so I'm going to go with an LAFC Philadelphia final myself and, and I'm going to go with an LAFC, uh, you know, tournament winner. I, I think Columbus is a team to watch. Um, Philly's obviously a team to watch. I, I agree with the Toronto FC, uh, you know, as well. And, and Orlando playing at home, I think is, has a nice advantage. So I think that that one is, is going to be a team to watch as well, but I think you're right about the LAFC side although it's going to be very close. I think they're going to see Columbus in that semifinal and I think they're going to get Philly in the end and I think they're going to. You're going to have an LAFC winner. So um, let's table our MLS discussion. And obviously we've got some matches coming up all week between the 26th, the 27th and 28th of, of this month and the July 31st as well. August 1st, there are matches every single day, almost for the uh, MLS's back tournament. So definitely take a look at your listings and, and, you know, make sure you catch those matches as well. So let's table this discussion because we had the pleasure yesterday, Rob, of interviewing certainly one of our, our favorites, you know, and one of the, I would consider a friend of the show, uh, Mr. Jonathan Johnson, who covers French football, and we were able to discuss with him not only French football, uh, the the Coupe de France final with uh, with PSG winning that one over Saint Etienne in a in a gritty match, um, but also what it would mean for Champions League, what what uh, what we could look ahead to for that, and we we did squeeze in his beloved Aston Villa as well. So, without further ado, the Jonathan Johnson interview. Joining us now on Low Limit Football, French football correspondent Jonathan Johnson. Jonathan, welcome back to the show. Uh, glad to have you back again. I want to open with a quick question, a quick hindsight question. 
now that we've seen the, the the top five leagues in Europe either come to a conclusion by playing out their matches or almost come to a conclusion in the case of Italy right now and, and at the time of this recording, England have not finished yet. Um, in your opinion, did French football make the decision a little too early to cancel the season or did they make the right decision at the right time, in your opinion? Hey there, guys. Thanks a lot for having me back on. Always a pleasure. I I think it's a very complicated question to answer because there's a lot of different parts to it. I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, um, you know, protecting everybody in the country, uh, you know, I, I think that we still might see a situation in the future, potentially with a second wave where we think, well, you know, actually the, the French weren't too hasty uh, in deciding to, to finish the, the footballing season. I mean, unfortunately, at this moment in time, though, from a, a purely footballing point of view, it seems like the decision was a bit rushed. And I say that because, you know, there was not very much unity behind the decision that was made by the, well, the, the advice that was given by the French government at the time, uh, you know, for the, for the season to, to not be able to finish. And then some of the decisions that have been taken afterwards, I mean, you know, we've already seen fans in stadiums uh, in, in July. Uh, you know, when you look at the way that the French public are behaving as well at the moment, it, uh, you know, it, it doesn't really seem, uh, you know, like it was uh, a, a decision that everybody rallied behind afterwards. It's, you know, pretty much everyone has gone and done their, their own thing. The decision has created a lot of legal uproar. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, from a purely footballing point of view, uh, you know, looking back on it, the, the decision was rushed. However, uh, you know, I think whether whether that it was the right decision to take or not, uh, or whether it was the smartest decision, uh, you know, with relation to the other what the other European countries decided, I think we're only going to see that answer you know much much further along the line i mean you just have to look over in spain at the moment uh, the, the the situation with Fuenlabrada, where you know you've got dozens uh, of, of players in the same team uh, you know suddenly testing positive i mean bunches of of players in different clubs in france are still uh you know testing positive as they've been returning to, to pre-season training ahead of the 2020-21 campaign so it's it, it's very Difficult to say that it was absolutely the right decision when you look at what's happened to French football, you know, since then. But also when you're looking at the the situation, I mean, I'm looking at the situation in France. Uh, it, it's very difficult to shake the feeling that there is going to, you know, be some sort of second wave at some point because, uh, you know, it, the, the the French public just don't take it seriously enough. You know, look back at uh, the, the the pictures. I'm sure you guys saw from when PSG played the friendly against Vaslan Beveren uh, from Belgium uh, a, a week or so ago. You know, the PSG ultras, you know, basically sort of going back to, to how things were before um, coronavirus was even a thing. And, you know, that sort of behavior, I think, is, uh, is, is quite concerning. Uh, okay, they've corrected it in the second friendly against Celtic, but, it, you know, it's still quite worrying to see that kind of uh, uh, disregard for everything that happened earlier this year. And, you know, for me, I, I still think that, you know, France could be proven, not necessarily correct, because obviously all the other European football seasons have now come to an end or are coming to an end, um, you know, but will be shown to have not been completely wrong uh, in, in finishing the, the season prematurely. But at this moment in time, 
from a purely footballing point of view, you know, in terms of the economic impact, uh, you know, the, the with relation to France's standing within Europe, uh, it you know, it was a rush decision. Yeah, and it was certainly a, it might have been a rush decision, but to make it in in those times was was a very difficult position to be in. So it's we have the benefit now here, you know, in the at the end of July of, of making a hindsight, uh, you know, decision or, or look back on it, and it's just it was a difficult time, and and you know the fact is they they made their decision, they stuck with it, and and here we are today. I, I do want to move into uh, Leon. I'm sorry, not Leon, but PSG a little bit. Obviously, winning the uh, the Coupe de France yesterday, they are also getting ready to play Lyon in the Coupe de la Ligue. Uh, 1-0 victory against a 10-man Saint Etienne. It was a very physical match. I know we're going to get into Kylian Mbappe in a few minutes, but I want your opinion on what PSG has looked like so far. Is this a team that is ready to take on the competition, the next meaningful, truly meaningful competition for them, which is the Champions League coming up against Atalanta. Does this team look ready to do that? And what, what are they missing, in your opinion, to be able to take on a very tough and plucky Atalanta side? I mean, you know, PSG's first few matches back since the, since the break have been a bunch of friendlies against teams who, you know, even if they were all fully fit, you know, don't have the same level as, uh, as PSG. I mean, I think that's been reflected in the results. You know, they absolutely thrashed uh, La Havre and uh, Vastelin Beveren in their first two friendlies. Uh, you know, they still stuck a couple of goals past uh, past Celtic as well. Uh, and, that, you know, I think that's, that sort of accurately reflects the level between, the, between those sides uh, on paper, uh, you know, when, when none of the... You know, none of those sides have, have had much match practice. Uh, you know, going into the Saint-Étienne match, it was a very physical contest. And I think as soon as it became obvious to the PSG players and staff that, you know, this this was going to be a very physical battle over 90 minutes, I think they, you know, decided to, you know, sort of try to limit the damage, especially after the, the injury to, to Kylian Mbappé. Uh, it was very, very difficult for PSG to sort of play their to play their normal game. I'd, I'd say that Santetian were very, very motivated. Uh, you know, I think that's normal when Santetian have this very um, this very poor record against PSG. It's uh, you know, it, it's quite an unwanted uh, record. I think they're now 22 matches, uh, you know, without beating PSG. So I think that plays into their their thinking and their preparation every time they come up against PSG. Um, you know, there, there were some good passages of play in the game from, from Saint-Étienne, so I think PSG have to give some credit there. You know, there were some good performances. I thought Fofana did well. Uh, Buanga is one of those guys who can, you know, can turn it on and, uh, you know, can play with, with very high quality when, when he wants to. We saw that when he hit the post in the first half. Uh, and I think Moulin also made some very good saves. And if he, he's not making those stops, you know, PSG are winning by a more comfortable margin. Uh in terms of the performance from PSG, okay, obviously, obviously not ideal, um, but you know they're still finding their feet uh, in, in competitive terms, uh, and I think that they would have preferred, uh, you know, that sort of stern workout instead of you know an absolute cakewalk because I don't think thumping teams sort of you know you know nine nil seven nil four nil is you know particularly beneficial for PSG at this stage when they're preparing to come up against an Atalanta team who are going to create chances against PSG they are going to cause problems uh, and I think the most worrying aspect of the whole performance against Santos was how uh, fragile PSG looked 
defensively. I mean, losing Kerrer is not ideal, uh, especially when you bear in mind that Bernat um, and Diallo uh, have not been able to feature in any of the friendlies, uh, you know, for a variety of, uh, of, of fitness reasons. So, you know, I'd say that the defensive side of things at this moment in time is probably worrying uh, Thomas Tuchel a bit. And we'll see how he deals with that ahead of the, the Coupe de la Ligue final against Lyon uh, next week. But I don't think that Lyon will set up to destroy uh, PSG as physically as, as Santos Yen did. Now, Jonathan, now obviously focusing on the elephant in the room, and that is killing Mbappe. Obviously, we saw the injury that uh, Perrin gave to him uh, as as we speak right now. According to PSG's website, it's a serious right ankle sprain to the external lateral compartment. He's going to be evalu- reevaluated in 72 hours with clinical and ankle imaging analysis. So I think whatever happens to him, I think it's going to be a big miss for, for PSG. And, and you also add into just that pressure that they have now heading into this Atalanta um, side in in this really decisive game. I mean, it's going to be tough in any case. I think for both teams, you know, one is how will PSG be able to react against an Atalanta side that have now, as we speak, 18 games unbeaten, 54 goals in the process against the PSG side who are just trying to find their feet playing competitive games. I mean, how have you been able to assess this this tie completely, and now with this injury of Kylian Mbappe, I mean, that, that surely is going to be a big miss for, for for this PSG side. Of course, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that you can look at this PSG Atalanta matchup. Uh, you know, if you're looking at it on paper, you say that PSG are the favourites, but you know, I think at any match that Atalanta go into, you know, they're not really viewed as favourites when you're judging it solely on paper. You know, this Atalanta side, you have to judge them by what they do on the pitch. Uh, you know, and you have to applaud the way that they play their football. It's a very, very pure uh, style of play. Very, very exciting. And to be perfectly honest, it was the, the tie that I hoped for for PSG. Not because I thought that it would be an easy match for them to get through. Uh, it's, you know, just a particular team that I wanted to see them come up against because I wanted to see you know, uh, at first hand, you know, how this, this Atalanta side function because they, uh, you know, they, they're, they're one of these revelations, that, you know, that pops up in European football from time to time. Hopefully, uh, you know, they, they will stick around for, for some time to come. But, you know, the, the football, the exciting football, the, this fantastic story that they've managed to produce over the, over the course of the season has been really, really heartwarming. And, uh, you know, I, I think that they will be every neutral favourite, uh, you know, for this tie. Uh, and obviously with PSG at this moment in time, with, with such a lack of competitive action, it's very difficult to judge exactly where they are uh, in terms of, of competitive readiness. Uh, you know, I think the, the judgment needed to come more after the, after the second cup final against Lyon. Uh, it's very clear from the Saint-Étienne game that they're still quite far from being ready uh, for the for the clash with Atalanta, uh, and you know, with with this injury to Mbappe, you'd have to assume, based on what PSG are saying, that he's probably going to be out for at least the next two weeks. And if he's out for the next two weeks, that gives him a shot of being ready for the Atalanta match. But he's not going to play any other football before that game. That's you know that's probably the most likely outcome at this moment in time, at least until the you know the the extra testing uh, that's going to take place 72 hours after the after the first verdict was uh, uh, was announced. So 
obviously Mbappe is hugely important to PSG uh, and they're going to want to get him back on the pitch at any cost. Uh, but, you know, you have to cast our minds back to how PSG got past Borussia Dortmund uh, in the round of 16. And don't forget that PSG did it mainly without Mbappe in that second leg because, uh, you know, Mbappe was sick. Uh, you know, there were a lot of rumours that he, he contracted uh, COVID-19 before that game. Turned out he had tested negative, but he was ill. Uh, and, you know, PSG did manage to, you know, to put in a big performance largely without him. You know, okay, he came on in the second half, but, you know, the, most of the work had been done then. And like I was saying in response to Joe's question earlier, I think the bigger concern for, for Tuchel and for PSG at this moment in time is to, is to get that defence shored up. Uh, you know, it doesn't really feel like Tuchel's been able to field his strongest 11 just yet. Uh, you know, you've still got players like uh, Marco Verratti on the on on the bench. Uh, you know, Presnel Kimpembe as well. So it, it doesn't really feel like Tuchel has unveiled his what he feels his strongest starting eleven to be uh, just yet. So I'd be keen to know how many more players will be available to him come the the Lyon uh, Coupe de la Ligue final next week. Uh, you know, we'll just have to wait and see there. But in terms of players who could pick up an injury, be out for a couple of weeks come back and not really lose too much fitness-wise, I think Mbappe is probably top of the list uh, for PSG. So assuming that, you know, the you know this this ankle sprain is not too severe, uh, you know, and he does just need a little bit of time to get over it, uh, you know, I'd say that he's probably one of the players that PSG would be, you know, sort of least concerned about the after effects of. Uh, but Obviously, I'm just saying this after the first round of testing and we'll know more once he undergoes a complimentary test in the, in the next couple of days. Yeah, definitely. And I think what you also look, it comes at a bad time when you look at all the depth that they also have, but also with the injuries as well. I think it really will be a big factor heading into this game against Atalanta. But now you're really looking into a situation um, where someone like Neymar has to step up, someone like uh, Mauro Icardi has to step up. I mean, those are really the answers if this PSG side is going to advance against this Atalanta side. And, and knowing how well that, you know, we saw Neymar score that goal against um, <clears throat> San Etienne, he really is that main factor. And he is the one that we have to all watch for, especially with this um loss of Kylian Mbappe, even if he does play, I would assume he probably won't be at 100%, but I think all the focus now is on Neymar, and, and, and obviously all the expectation that has been come through him ever since joining PSG, now's the moment. I mean, that, that's, yeah, I that's agree, the thing. I agree with you. I think, you know, it does <clears throat> sort of lay down the gauntlet, it, you know, it does challenge Neymar to, to sort of step up and, and be that PSG talisman again, like he was against uh, Borussia Dortmund. Uh, you know, he's shown in the past that he can rise to that challenge, but also at the same time, you know, he has been very unlucky and he has missed a lot of, you know, these uh, these, these crucial clashes. So, uh, you know, I think that it's it's obviously going to be a key moment for him. Tuchel will want to keep him fit as, as much as possible. And, you know, I'm sure he'll be hoping for a, a cleaner match uh, against Lyon next week. Uh, you know, we might see somebody like Neymar completely rested for the final friendly against Sochaux uh, before PSG depart for Portugal. Uh, and, I, I mean, I think of the players that you mentioned, Icardi is probably the more problematic for PSG at this moment in time. 
uh, okay, got himself a couple of goals in, the, in, in some of the friendlies. But when you look at him uh, in the way that PSG are playing at the moment, particularly in that clash with, with Saint-Étienne, not really getting involved enough, uh, you know, not quite on the end of uh, you know some of the chances that are being created. Uh, I remember before half time against Saint Etienne, uh, you know, a ball being played in and you know basically hitting him in the face. Uh, <laughs> he you know he needs to be a bit more aware, needs to get involved a bit more. Uh, you know, especially when you consider how much PSG has to pay to take up that permanent option on him. Uh, you know, which has basically come at the expense of Edinson Cavani, who hasn't returned to PSG since his contract expired at the end of June. So, uh, you know, I think Icardi at this moment in time is going to be a bigger concern, uh, you know, to, to Tuchel than uh, the, the Neymar. You know, Neymar got his goal against Saint-Étienne. He's looked good in the friendlies. Uh, the only thing that, that he needs to be wary of is, is not running Neymar into the ground too much, you know, before the Champions League comes along. So I think we'll see him, you know, uh, being the, the, the focal point of the team uh, against, against Lyon uh, and then it wouldn't surprise me if he's completely rested against uh, Sochaux, uh, you know, but we'll see how that Lyon match uh, plays out because it's almost certainly going to be without uh, Kylian Mbappe and, you know, we'll see how, how Tuchel tackles uh, the, the absence of, uh, of, of Mbappe. Uh, I mean, the other, the other thing that's also interesting is that, you know, PSG also have to think about how they're going to approach this Atalanta match without Angel Di Maria, who's suspended you know, Di Maria is such an important part of what PSG do. Uh, you know, they have a very talented uh, replacement in uh, Pablo Sarabia, and it wouldn't surprise me to see Sarabia, uh, you know, sort of play a bigger role uh, against Lyon, especially now with uh, with Mbappe unavailable. Now, Jonathan, I want to jump in here because I want to take a focus or take a minute to focus on the other team that is in the Champions League, and obviously that's Lyon as they match up. They're, they take their second leg to turn against Juventus with a 1-0 lead. Uh, another team that is really not going to see much meaningful football prior to that particular match. Obviously, we're going to get the Coupe de la Ligue final against PSG like we've been discussing. Um, but Lyon has really just basically played a series of uh, of friendlies here leading up to it. What are your um, your impressions of, of what we're going to see out of Lyon coming into that match? Especially when we've come off of the break and we've seen many, many teams uh field rusty sides sides that are not quite as crisp as they would be mid-season Juve are going to have the benefit of having uh you know a, a, a 12 to 14 matches before they get to that match and although they have not looked their best recently they've lost Douglas Costa now to the rest for the rest of the season due to injury um they will be a a mid-season form team versus a Lyon side that will just really just getting their feet wet again what are your uh impressions of, of how that match might play out I think it's very difficult to, to judge Leon based on a bunch of friendlies so far. I mean, I think they've won three of their four and they've lost one. Uh, obviously, going up against a team that's you know been in competitive action for a while now, they're they're immediately at a disadvantage. Uh, I think you know the the cup final against PSG is going to be a very good indicator of how ready they are. I mean, if if Leon can uh, you know keep the match very tight. Uh, you know, not not get overrun, uh, you know, not get outscored by, you know, by too many. Uh, you know, I think that they will, that, you know, they will not feel completely deflated going into the Juventus match. I mean, if PSG, uh, you know, play the, the same way that they did against Saint-Étienne, you know, I think that Lyon are more equipped to, to exploit that than, than Saint-Étienne were, so that, you know, there's a chance of a, 
a relative uh, shock result there, uh, you know, depending on sort of how the how the two teams perform on the night. But I think what what Leon will be hoping for more than anything is to, you know, not be completely overawed against a, a club that has already returned to competitive action, uh, and you know, they they will probably feel that that sets them up uh, better. Uh, ahead of the, the the decisive second leg against Juventus, when you look at the results in the friendlies, you know they've they've been relatively narrow score lines: one nil win, a two nil loss, two one win, a three two win. It's you know they they need to work on on tightening up a bit and conceding fewer goals, mm-hmm. but you know at the same time they you know they are scoring goals uh, in in most of those games, so. You know, I, th- I think that they'll be they'll be confident of being able to hold their own against PSG, and then after that, it's uh, you know it's a question of how they handle uh, Juventus. Uh, you know, PSG would be a would, would be a good workout for them before uh, that uh, that Champions League return leg. I think we'll learn a lot from them in that Coupe de la Ligue final, certainly leading into Champions League, which is always the you know the ultimate prize. Before I let you go, I would be remiss to not ask you about Aston Villa. Um, obviously, in a in a battle, a relegation battle, they are currently tied with Watford on points. Uh, Watford go to Arsenal uh, to face Arsenal, where Villa have uh, are, go to West Ham, a team that has already secured uh, safety. Uh, does Villa survive? And also, we've, you know, we've we've technically got uh, Bournemouth that's waiting in the wings as well. Does Villa survive this? Do they do they stay one more year in the uh, in the uh, Premier League? You know, what? it's it's a very very uh, tricky tricky question to answer. I mean, obviously, beating Arsenal was a huge boost that that puts Villa's fate back in their own hands. I and mean, it's as simple as go to West Ham on the final day of the season against a team who don't really have anything to, left to play for now, considering that they are guaranteed to stay in the Premier League. It's basically as simple as go there, win, and you know you live to fight another day in the Premier League. Uh, and I don't really think there can be much greater motivation for Villa at this moment in time, especially when you consider the absolutely dreadful run of form that we had, uh, you know, not winning in the league since beating Watford 2-1. Uh, and, until the recent win over Crystal Palace, and I think it's uh, it's it's just such a, a massive opportunity for Villa, and the the margins are very fine because if Villa do stay up this season, to have been able to survive with a pretty much entirely overhauled squad, uh, mainly consisting of new new foreign players that have that have been brought in, uh, to reach a domestic cup final. Uh, you know that that is a big success on uh, on their return to the Premier League after a couple of seasons away, but you know drop down and and suddenly the the cup final looks like it was an unnecessary distraction. Uh, you know and the project has been set back a couple of seasons, but you know there's so much for Villa to play for uh, against West Ham, and you know I think that uh, you know the the likes of, uh, of of Watford and Bournemouth are really going to be praying that uh, the West Ham can can do them a favour. But you know, I, I'd say that the, the the situation at the moment favours favours Villa. When you look at the way the we've set ourselves up and played in the game since the restart, with the exception of the you know the United loss at home, uh, you know we've been reasonably hard to break down. Uh, you know, and in the last couple of games, we rediscovered a bit of a scoring touch, you know, which is a, 
a welcome boost. So I, I think personally, my feeling is that you know, the Villa will, you know, be able to, you know, to avoid defeat away at West Ham, which could be enough. Uh, you know, but I do think that they'll be targeting that that win. So for me, I'm I'm feeling cautiously optimistic, which is not always the the, the best thing to feel as a as a Villa fan because that's normally when you get uh, disappointed the most. But I think the way that uh, you know their their form has turned up in the last last couple of matches, uh, you know, I, th- I think that the motivation will be high enough, uh, you know, to go and get the result against West Ham. And if they can get the win. And it doesn't matter what anybody else uh, does, and you know, to to be able to stay up after everything that's happened this uh, this season would be, you know, would, would just be huge for, for Villa and the the project moving forward. No doubt, certainly high drama expected uh, in the Premier League to close out the season. Jonathan, I, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. As always, it's always a pleasure, and we look forward to having you back again soon. Likewise, guys, pleasure was all mine. Thanks for having me on, and uh, speak soon. And special thanks again to Jonathan Johnson for joining us on the show. Rob, let's take a look real quick because some of the news that broke this week uh, was pretty interesting. The Ballon d'Or has been canceled for the first time in the awards history because of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Uh, Very, very interesting news that came out of French football to not award it this year. Um, You know, I want to get your thoughts on it because it's... It's an award. It would have been simple. The, the seasons have been completed. They could have, from, in my opinion, they could have awarded this, but, uh, but they chose not to. So I'd, I'd like your thoughts behind why this was canceled and, and what, you think, uh, what you think about it. Well, I, I think an obvious answer would probably be because this is an unreal year of our lives, and that's affected how the season has been um, given. So when you have an extended amount of time without football soccer um it kind of just it it takes away from the the mystique of what is you know the sport you know the fact that you can get that consistency and how you have to show your consistency for an extended amount of time is that when it is stopped that kind of just it doesn't work that way i mean some have also said that maybe because of the lack of of football that we see in, in france where obviously the the people that award it are French. Maybe that's kind of one big factor as well. I mean, another joke is that, you know, maybe Messi and Ronaldo were not going to win it this year, so it's like, okay, we should get rid of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's super weird, I would say. Very weird. But um, in terms of who would I pick if it were to occur, I mean, I generally think that looking at all what we've seen all this season – I mean, my pick is probably Robert Lewandowski. I think he had the best shot of winning it, um, better than anyone. Um, you know, and obviously we're looking at the likes. I mean, I think Messi and Ronaldo are still in that conversation, but we, you know, we have him. Uh, you have Kevin De Bruyne, who's had a fantastic season as well. Um, you know, it's 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 been fun. You know, Chiri Mobile as well. You know, being the Capo, fighting for the Capo Cagnetti over there. I mean, even even if we had to pick French. Uh, base players. I mean, Kylian Mbappe had, had been doing very well. Um, you know, the, the, Real Madrid with the likes of a Karim Benzema or Sergio Ramos. I mean, it's it's been it's it's been up there. It's been really competitive. But if I had to choose one player, if I had to pick, 
I pick Robert Lewandowski. You know, and I and I agree with you on the Lewandowski pick. You know, he's had an incredible season. Um, and, and not to take away, I think it would have been either Lewandowski or Messi's award, to be honest with you, with Messi doing giving you 25 goals and 21 assists. The only the second time that that someone's done a 2020 season, I guess, this century, uh, you know, is just an amazing feat, you know, especially given that the team only finished second. I mean, it tells you how competitive the La Liga was. So, you know, you look at, like you said, Karim Benzema, Sergio Ramos, those those types of players. Um, you look at Chiro Immobile that, that's scoring right now. He scored 31 goals at the moment. You know, he's having an incredible season. Even Cristiano Ronaldo scored 30 goals, if you think about it. So he's had a heck of a season. But for me, I completely agree. I think Lewandowski would have been the choice. I think Kylian Mbappe could have also been in the discussion. Um, you know, and, and like you mentioned as well, Kevin De Bruyne for sure would have been in the discussion. I was actually kind of surprised that... Uh, Football Player of the Year was awarded to Jordan Henderson over Kevin De Bruyne, to be honest with you. Um, but that's another discussion for another day. But, uh, yeah, for me, I think Lewandowski would have been the choice. Um, and and it's, it, it stinks because he had such a great season. But it, it, there's no signs of him stopping right now. There's no reason to, st- to think that he's going to turn in a stinker of a season next year. Bayern look like quite possibly the strongest team on the planet right now. Uh, they're certainly the most complete and, uh, you know, I know everyone's looking forward to seeing how they do in the champions league once they ultimately dispose of Chelsea, because I don't see them. I don't see Chelsea coming back from the three nil deficit that they're suffering right now. So, um, it's going to be interesting to see how Bayern do and how Lewandowski does. But again, he's had a heck of a season, both in champions league and in the Bundesliga. So there's no reason to think that he's going to have a stinker as it comes down to it as well. So, um, I, I, I don't entirely agree with the with the decision to not award it that this and, and also French football is going to award a top 11. I don't know if you saw that news, they will award a top 11 as well. So um, you're still going to get your top 11, but you're not going to get your ball and door. And I thought that was kind of a little choppy either award the awards or don't. But at the same time, I think, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, the low limit football ball and door winner is going to be Robert Lewandowski this year. And, uh, and I think we're going to go with that. So, um, let's, uh, let's table that discussion and let's talk about some matches of the week this week. Like we said, at the time of this recording, England is set to finish their season. Uh, obviously, all eyes on the relegation race today. Uh, Spain is complete. Germany's complete. France was canceled, as we had discussed with Jonathan. Uh, all that's left is Italy. So we've got a couple of matches. Again, keep an eye on the MLS's back tournament because we have multiple matches this week. Uh, but in Italy on Tuesday, we have Inter-Napoli at 3.45 p.m. And then their final day of the season is set for next Sunday with Juve-Roma at 9 a.m. and Lazio-Napoli at 9 a.m. as well. So uh, definitely the last couple of matches. And and it's nice to see, Rob, that these, that these uh, leagues that took the chance and went out and tried to uh, complete their seasons did get it done really without a hitch. I think it's a, a testament to what they've done in Europe post uh, COVID-19. And I, I think they should all be applauded for it. And, you know, great to see that we got football this deep into the summer. So Rob, let me give you the trivia question again. Um, Chiro Immobile is on the verge of winning his third Capo Canonieri. How many players have won three or more Capo Canonieris? And can you name the two non-Italians that have won it? All right, I'm going to give you a number. Uh, that's the one that's giving yeah. me a bit difficult. And what I'll do is I'll, um, give, I'll give you a higher or lower, and I'll give you a second chance at it. So. Okay. Um, I'm going to say four. Higher. Six. It is going to be a little bit higher. Um, if you want to give one more shot, it's higher than six. Eight. Eight is correct. There have been eight players, and I'm not going to give you the names yet because there are two names that are not Italian 
that have won the title. Can you name the two? Okay, so one name, I don't know if he's on there, but I figure that he's always been someone that likes to score goals, and I feel like he might be on there. Is it Gary Batistuta? Batistuta did not win it three times. Did not win it three times. No. Okay. Um, one, is a, um, one, one is a Frenchman and one is a Swede. Okay, well, okay. Thank you for giving me the first one. Uh, <laughs> Swede is uh, Sadek Ibrahimovic. No, he did not win it three times. Oh, okay. You got, you got to go way back uh, in Italian history on this one. Way back. He's actually the top. He won five titles. I feel like I know the name, but I don't know. He played for Milan. I know what you're talking about, but I don't know the name. I, let me, he played at Milan, didn't he? He did play at Milan. I, you want me to give you the name? Yeah. Gunnar yeah, Nordahl. Gunnar Nordahl won the most no. most couple Canonieres. He won five. From 1949-1950 to 1954-55, he won it five times. Um, and, and actually, he, he only missed one season out of those six seasons, the 51-52 season. So the okay. second name, um, like I said, is a Frenchman. Okay. If I give you the team, you're going to probably get it. And this is not a retired player. This is not a retired player. He is a retired player. Oh, he is a retired. Yes. Okay. Um, Frenchman. Michel Platini. Michel Platini won it three times for Juve. 82-83, and 84-85. The players that have won the Capo Caninieri three or more times, starting from the bottom of the list, Giuseppe Signori at Lazio, Michel Platini at Juventus, Roberto Pruzzo at Roma, Paolo Pulici at uh, Torino, Gigi Riva at Cagliari, Adolf, mm-hmm. Aldo, Aldo Boffi at Milan, Giuseppe Meazza at Inter, and five-time winner Gunnar Nordahl at uh, Milan, five times. And you now are looking at uh, possibly Ciro Immobile joining this list of great strikers. So, uh, good stuff. All right, uh, without uh, any further ado, Rob, let's hit the closing music. Let's do it. Right, here we go. So, for episode 291 of Low Limit Football, special thanks again to Jonathan Johnson for joining us. Next week, we will be talking all Champions League, all Europa League, and we'll give you the semifinalists of the MLS's back tournament. So, for episode 291 of Low Limit Football, I'm Joe Ucello. I'm Roberto Rojas. Thanks for listening, everyone, and good night.